BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Just like Mork and Mindy are the crazy ones, this series is made possible through advertising. And I want to make sure that I choose advertisers that are relevant to you. So to help me learn about who's listening, please go to podsurvey.com knowing to take a quick anonymous survey. Once you've completed the survey, you can choose to enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Start the survey now at podsurvey.com knowing. That's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash knowing. San Francisco. I love this city. I grew up here. It's always been a very, very special place to me. That's the intro to the comedy special An Evening with Robin Williams we're hearing. It's sultry, nostalgic, and makes you wonder, what in the world does twangy old Western music have to do with San Francisco anyway? There's Robin Williams. He's disguised as a newspaper hawker, and he's got this great leather aviator jacket on and a red baseball cap, and he's speaking incredibly fast out of the side of his mouth. You heard that right. He just compared the late Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat to former Beatles drummer Ringo Starr. And if you Google that, it might be true. So what kind of mind leaps to all of these places, from politics to rock and roll to religion, all in less than a minute? That's something only Robin could pull off. Welcome back to Knowing, Robin Williams. I'm your host, Christy Westgard. And I'm Dave Itzkoff. I'm a New York Times culture reporter, and I'm the author of a biography on Robin Williams called Robin. Last week, we left off with Robin getting cut from Juilliard and heading back to San Francisco in the winter of 1976. And he comes back to the city at a sort of golden era for its comedy scene. Right, Dave? Well, San Francisco at that time was really undergoing a kind of comedy renaissance or or a revolution. San Francisco used to be the kind of city where very straightforward and buttoned-down comedy routines were put on. These were men wearing suits and ties and telling narratives and delivering one-liners in what were formerly comedy clubs. Now you're finding in San Francisco that comedy is something that can basically be performed anywhere. Any setup that has four walls and a door is starting to put on comedy shows. And so the very first place that Robin ends up performing in is like a, a church basement or the basement of a kind of progressive interfaith groups. And so that's uh, a launching pad for him. And then uh, within a few months, he becomes a regular uh, uh, at a San Francisco club called the Holy City Zoo. It's a very small club, but it's one that quickly develops a reputation for putting on 
uh, the kind of foremost San Francisco comedians, the wildest ones, the most surprising ones, the the dirtiest ones. And it's a place where a lot of people go to drink and do drugs also, and that is part of its mystique and part of its uh, charm or electricity at the time, that all these things are kind of uh, commingling, and that is uh, the crowd and the scene that, that Robin first really gets absorbed into. And that's where Robin meets Valerie Velarde. He sometimes bartended at the Holy City Zoo, and one night as he was working, Valerie caught his eye. She was a dance instructor at the time, as well as a master's student and cocktail waitress. And the two just hit it off. When she comes to the bar, he doesn't present himself as the usual Robin. And he starts talking to her in a French accent, and she is completely taken in by this. And the whole night, he's talking to her as if he is... uh, you know, a French man in America, and they go out for a nighttime drive, and she eventually drops him off at his parents' house. Uh, and it's only later that she comes to realize that the man that she was hanging out with that whole night was American. And it, it's it's very charming and romantic, but it is also very indicative of how Robin is around people, and certainly around people that he doesn't totally know yet or doesn't maybe feel completely comfortable with yet, that he puts up a little bit of uh, a distance or a kind of a a mask on himself, a persona, to protect himself from this person until he feels like, I can totally trust you with who I am. Uh, It's much easier for me to play this character and you can make your judgments about the character because if you were to really reject me, I I would be so deeply wounded that I couldn't take it. And Robin's still pretty young around this time. He's 25 years old. He's been going around San Francisco's comedy clubs, performing with cowboy boots, an unbuttoned Hawaiian shirt, his hairy chest, and just lots of sweat. And he's starting to make a name for himself. Meanwhile, his relationship with Valerie is ramping up, and the two decide to go to Los Angeles to jumpstart his career. It's really astonishing how fast everything happens for Robin once he moves to L.A., certainly by the standards of that era and even by the standards of today, that right away, because he has a little bit of a track record from San Francisco, he's able to get great gigs in the major clubs in Los Angeles. Robin began performing with a troupe called Off the Wall in West Hollywood, and he took all of his gigs, big or small, really seriously. He even had business cards printed up, which seems so silly thinking back on it. But he was committed. As he worked the crowds night after night, he got really good at time-worn traditions like shutting down hecklers. I keep it back on before I... Okay, wow. (laughs) Another reason to legalize abortion in America. He also pulled from his more formal training. I would like to do Shakespeare's only unknown work, so that's the way you lick it. Soon, he got a chance to audition for Mitzi Shore. She was the booker and owner of the Comedy Store, which was the comedy club of the time. And he managed to impress her. He scored a salaried position that paid $200 a week, which doesn't sound like a ton, but it's more about the stability of knowing that he was going to get that money in his bank account every week which was rare and something that he'd never had before. And this just went to show what weight class Robin was punching in. That's where he starts to make uh, inroads and friendships with people like Richard Pryor, who would be 
uh, a kind of a, a mentor and an idol to Robin throughout his stand-up comedy career. But for just about every comic who took the stage at these clubs, the dream was to perform a stand-up set that caught the attention of a talent scout, like Howard Papish. I was one of two people who basically used to scour the, uh, the comedy stores and to, to watch people and to see if they were ready for the show or if there was potential. Howard was a talent coordinator for The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. If he liked your set, he could open the most important door in comedy, an invitation to sit on Johnny's couch and entertain millions. Johnny loved stand-up comedians so that if uh, we booked a comedian for the first time and they really scored and he liked them, he'd want to have them back right away. Howard met Robin in early 1977, and he immediately recognized that star quality. I was uh, about to go to San Diego, and I happened to be talking to Mitchie Shore, and I said, listen, I'm going to be in San Diego for the weekend. I may have some time to stick my head in the door. Will you leave a couple of passes for me? And she said, absolutely. I said, in fact, and who's appearing there? Is anybody I know? And she, she was from Milwaukee, and she had this whining voice, and she said, well... You know, we have this one and we have that one. And she says, have you ever seen Robin Williams? Howard hadn't. He went to the comedy store with his wife that night, as the two had done countless times before. So I sat through two other comedians who were fine. Nothing special, but fine. And then Robin Williams comes on the scene. And I mean, like within five minutes of the stand-up, and he probably went on for about an hour, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. There was just something so special about him. And I was struggling because a lot of his material was blue. There was a lot of profanity and all, which, of course, we couldn't use on The Tonight Show. So in my mind, I was sort of editing about, you know, well, you know, does he have enough material for, for 15 minutes here? But I was so completely entertained and laughed so hard. Howard went up to Robin after the show to introduce himself, and the two set up an audition in Los Angeles for the following week. So flash forward to then, when Robin came in and he floored Howard yet again with his character bits and political references. And then I looked at him and I said to him, do you know that you're a star? That you're a star that just hasn't been discovered yet? And he looked at me sort of blankly like, what are you talking about? Howard never did get the chance to book Robin, though. His content might have been hilarious, but it definitely wasn't tame enough for TV. And Dave, this is a big chance that Robin kind of blew. I mean, The Tonight Show is the golden standard, and Robin went into this audition with the wrong type of material. Robin didn't fully appreciate what that meant, or it was something that was important to him, but he also wasn't necessarily interested in doing the specific work that the producers of The Tonight Show expected in order for him to earn that. He was the kind of guy who liked to show up at a club, read the energy, and do what came to him. And so that made him a little bit uncertain, or even a little bit dangerous to the producers, and they weren't willing to make that commitment. Now, looking back, we know that this isn't game over for Robin by any means. He's going to end up appearing on Johnny's show not once, but many times over as his career progresses. He'll become one of Johnny's favorite guests and is even invited by Johnny to be one of a select few who performs for Johnny's final show. Never cease to be amazed at the versatility and the wonderful work that Robin Williams does. Would you welcome him, please? Robin Williams. (laughs) 
Here you see Robin coming on to stage to greet Johnny for this final time. And he's pushing along this monstrosity of a rocking chair that has these kind of bent guitars for legs. I brought you a little something! <laughs> You've got to be kidding. A little something from the Elvis estate! <laughs> And here comes the punchline. Can I try Should I? Please sit on down and we'll give you a pina colada. <laughs> but for now, Robin continued to hone his own skills. He was taking classes with Harvey Lumbeck, who was this prolific comedic actor of the time and a really stern teacher. And it was in Harvey's class that Robin was noticed by the wife of Larry Bresner. He was this big shot agent at Roland's Joffe, which was one of the top management companies of that time. They represented... Woody Allen. They represented Dick Cavett. They had just signed David Letterman and Billy Crystal and thought that both of them were going to be big deals, and they were right about that. Robin signed on with the firm. So at this point, he's been hacking it for just under a year. In 1977, he appears in a few low-budget films, and he joins the cast of Richard Pryor's sketch show. Your Honor, a rabbit, Cheshire cat, Humpty Dumpty, Your Honor, this man is obviously a master of disguise. The show was ahead of its time with sketches that often satirized race in America. The only thing that's obvious is that this woman is ridiculous. You see there, Your Honor, a man, a stranger from the North, comes and calls our bell of the South ridiculous. Now I beg you to bring in a verdict of guilty. There's no other verdict but guilty. But behind the scenes, tensions were really high. Richard was known to abuse drugs and alcohol, and he was often in disagreement with the network about the content of his show, which created a toxic environment that led to the show being canceled just three weeks after it launched. After that, Robin struggled to find a more steady gig, and it felt like there weren't any long-term gains from all the work he was putting in for these one-off jobs. What he doesn't know, though, is that the stars are starting to line up. When we come back from the break, Robin is handed the role he's been waiting for. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Every Tuesday night, families across America sat down to tune into ABC's Happy Days. By the late 70s, it had become the second most popular television series, but fresh ideas were getting harder to come by. Goodbye, gray sky, hello, blue. There's nothing can hold me when I hold you. 
even though it had been a top-rated program for a while, it was starting to lose steam. They were kind of running out of ideas. And the series creator, Gary Marshall, had a son who was very much a fan of Star Wars at the time and went to his dad and said, Dad, I want to see a spaceman on Happy Days. And Gary Marshall, being the dutiful father, turned to his writing staff and said, Scotty wants to see a spaceman. We've got to figure out how to make that happen. And this was a show that's set in 1950s Milwaukee. Uh, There's no Star Wars characters in that era. So they come up with the character of Mork from Ork, who is this kind of uh, good-natured, slightly naive alien who doesn't completely understand Earth customs and the way that humans interact. And he shows up on the planet basically seeking a perfectly average human specimen that he can take back with him to his home planet. And so essentially the producers of Happy Days had to have this kind of fire sale audition where they just brought in every comedian and comic actor who was available at the time, and they just kind of went through people one by one. And when they brought Robin in, they had him sit down in their office, and they said they present him with a chair, and they say, okay, Robin, can you sit in this chair the way that an alien would. And so instead of, uh, you know, sitting on it the way that humans are used to, he kind of went into the chair head first and then put his finger in a glass of water and pretended to drink from the glass through his finger. All right, all right, all right. Who's going wee, wee, wee? I'm saying who's going wee, wee, wee? And that became a kind of signature Mork move, but it was something that Robin just kind of invented in the moment. So they kind of knew then and there that they had their guy. Greetings, Bonzi. Remember me, Mork from Ork? You once called me the nutso from outer space. And Robin was marvelous in the role. But because it was a guest spot, it looked like another short stint job where very little would actually come of it. But meanwhile, at ABC, there's this strange turn of events where they're starting to prepare for their fall season, and they don't really like the shows that they have in development. They're kind of looking at the cupboard and feeling like it's a little bit bare. So the network turned to Gary Marshall to see if he had any ideas. And he's like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we just had this kid who was great in Happy Days, and, uh, you know, maybe we give him a series of his own and maybe Mork becomes his own character on a show. It's absurd that things fell into place for Robin in this very ramshackle process. Larry Bresner's partner, Buddy Mora, called up Robin to deliver the good news, that he was about to have his own show and that he'd be paid $1,500 a week, which delighted Robin. But it turns out that Mora was only joking about the salary. He then dropped a bombshell on him and let Robin know that he would, in fact, be making $15,000 a week. Robin was floored. Now, all Gary needed to do was find Mork from the planet Orc, a co-star. He decides to give Mork this kind of human roommate or friend or counterpart who can be the kind of straight man to Mork's wildness, and that's the character of Mindy, who's played by Pam Dauber. At the same time, Robin was also moving ahead in his personal life. Before they began filming, Robin and Valerie decided to get married. So on June 4th, 1978, they had an outdoor ceremony in a venue that overlooked the San Francisco Bay. Robin was about to get his first taste of fame with Valerie by his side. Right before Robin started on Mork and Mindy, his managers basically sat down with Valerie and said, look, 
your husband's going to be super famous. He's going to make a lot of money and you're going to have plenty of time to go shopping every day. And that really wounded her as you can understand that that was not the ride that she wanted to go on. She wasn't somebody who just wanted to sit at home and decorate a house and twiddle her thumbs. Valerie brushed off this encounter, and in July of 1978, Robin began filming the first episode of Mork and Mindy. Just by its nature, Mork and Mindy becomes a kind of second home to Robin, uh, certainly a home base for him professionally, where so much of his career to that point had been kind of disconnected and freelance and, and one job to the next job to the next. This is something that is, at least in theory, going to sustain him for a few years and a permanent place of operation for him. Robin liked to read the script for the week on Wednesday night, right before the cast's big morning read-through on Thursday, and he'd somehow remember all of the lines in that short amount of time. And it soon became clear to Howard Storm, who was the director of the series, that Robin had a sort of photographic memory. Robin was given a lot of opportunity particularly by Howard, in rehearsals to try to figure out new material or try to riff off of what was on the page. Or if Howard identified something in a scene, if he thought Robin could do it better or do it in a different way that was more comfortable or better fitting for him, he would let Robin do that. So giving Robin that permission and having that kind of give and take was very valuable to Robin. But It also created this kind of perception in the outside world that this is Robin's show and everything that's good about it is what's coming off the top of his head. Robin fueled that perception in press conferences, which really frustrated his writing staff. And one day, they would get their revenge. They sent down a blank script with just four words. Robin does his thing. And it wasn't just the writers who felt left out. Pam did too. Sometimes she would find out about, say, a photo shoot for a magazine article and they only wanted Robin and not her. Or she would literally be picking up a magazine and see only him on the cover and not her. And so she would go to him at times and tell him her feelings. Not that she was specifically mad at him because she knew he wasn't the one engineering it. It was coming from the studio and the network and to some extent Robin's managers who were very powerful and were pushing him as the lead of the show and he would say I understand your feelings I know this must be so hurtful empathize with her but not necessarily go the distance and draw a line and say I'm not doing this unless Pam is in it too. The way that Robin treated Pam was problematic not all of the time but fairly often. Pam Dauber talked about the fact that a lot of her interactions or the behind-the-scenes kind of humor or relationship that she had with Robin on, on his end, you know, was very body and was very inappropriate. That sometimes he would just, you know, get undressed or be undressed in front of her as a way to kind of shock her. Or, you know, he could be very physical with her and sometimes would grope her in ways that, you know, he never intended to be uh, sexual or a come-on and was just trying to be uh, funny and familiar with her, but in a way that I think we understand is, is completely inappropriate. I mean, this sort of behavior certainly wouldn't fly today. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can try to say, well, it was just the time that they were in and that's how people behaved. But there is also definitely this aspect of a person who is starting to get his first taste of power. This is 
his show and he knows it's becoming successful and there's things that he can do and and ways that he can be with other people that people can't really push back on or they can't tell him you're not allowed to do that. Now, Pam did tell you that she never took these encounters too seriously. She saw that Robin's intentions were more playful than predatory, but his actions toward her were a revealing character flaw. It's part of what's ever going on in his mind at that time and how he thinks about women and how he thinks he can be with women. And there's something that's kind of, uh, you know, pretty juvenile about it, too, even though by this point he's already in his late 20s. His understanding and his appreciation of women is still kind of narrow. In its first season, Mork and Mindy was widely watched and highly enjoyed, and that was thanks in no small part to Robin, who is now a fixture of Hollywood's elite. He continued to prove himself through his stand-up, too. Live at the Roxy was one of the very first cable specials that Robin appeared in, and it was totally built around him. It was really important for him to kind of draw a distinction between who the Mork from Ork character was and who he was. An angry mob! Sweat! Time out! I have to explain one thing. I ain't doing the mock because this is why I perform here, to do something different. That as a stand-up, he did things that were much more adult, much more sophisticated, uh, much more sexualized at times, things that Mork would never do on the show. And that was okay, uh, that he could say, this is my act, this is my TV character, and we're not the same person. Near the end of the special, Robin did a character a bit of himself as an old man, 40 years in the future. You, from me to you, you got to be crazy. You know what I'm talking about? Full goose bozo. Because what is reality? And he's saying, well, what's going to happen to me when I reach that age? What is life going to be like for me? What happens if my career starts to collapse, if the wheels come off, if my fans start to abandon me? What's going to happen to me if my mind and my body start to deteriorate? What if I can't operate at the kind of speed and the pace that I'm known for? The thing about Robin is he loved the hustle. He lived to work and he kept a grueling schedule between Mork and Mindy and his stand-up appearances. But it was all of his own choice. Eventually, his managers decided to bring in a helping hand. I live right near the improv in West Hollywood. That's Bennett Tramer. He's best known for writing the ever-popular early 90s sitcom Saved by the Bell. He also helped Robin write new material. But before he knew Robin as a trusted colleague and friend, he first stumbled upon him performing at the improv. You know, it took about... 30 seconds to realize this guy is just unique. He exploded on the stage. There's this burst of comic energy. He would do one character after another and completely change, just transform from one character into another, like morphing in a split second. Completely different body language, different voices, different facial expressions. Now, I want to preface Bennett's story of meeting Robin by saying that it really shows how small the industry is and how much the whole I-know-a-guy-who-knows-a-guy plays a role. Larry Bresner read a script of mine uh, that my agent submitted to him called Horseradish. <laughs> it was a story of a down-and-out producer who discovers the lost tribe of Israel but doesn't realize it. And it was funny. Larry loved it. He told my agent, this script's hysterical. 
but it makes the Talmud, you know, the Book of Jewish Wisdom, it makes the Talmud look goyish. But he thought it was really funny, so it got me a meeting with Charlie Joffe in Hollywood, Charlie Joffe and Larry Bresner. I said, you know, your new client, because I knew Robin Williams had signed with them, I'd love to write something for him. And they said, great, you know, we're all for it. Come back with ideas, we'll get going. Bennett also happened to be friends with Ken Lerner, who was a buddy of Robin and Valerie's, and the two went to see Robin perform for Bennett's 30th birthday. So I went to see him, and Ken introduced me, and I told Robin that his managers had liked my script, and he said, oh, it's, you know, they're, they're very particular. Uh, that was our talk, and he said, look, I'd love to read the script. I'll drop it by my apartment sometime. He stopped by Robin's place in West Hollywood a few nights later. He had all these outrageous, colorful shirts that he always wears. And he introduced me. I remember the first thing he did was introduce me to his parrot, whose name was Truman Capote. And the parrot had been taught to say, parrots can't talk. The two began working together on Robin's first comedy album, Reality, What a Concept. Robin's act at that time was great, his nightclub act. But, you know, it's so visual to see the facial expressions and the body language. I was hired to create more verbal material. Robin began to see Bennett as an antidote to Hollywood. He was hearing a lot of, you know, you're going to be big, you're going to be great, you're going to be the next big star. And I think I was sort of a safe refuge for him. I was a little skeptical of the whole Hollywood deal and you'll be great and you're the greatest. I mean, in his case, it was true. Fame created smoke screens that made it difficult for Robin to judge his work. I'd say he knew he was funny, but like all really talented people, he worries about how funny he is, and geez, these people love me so much. Am I really worthy of it? Robin relied on Bennett as a sort of litmus test for his work and sought his opinion on a project his managers really wanted him to do, a movie musical version of Popeye with Robin playing the iconic cartoon sailor. It would be Robin's first leading role in a film. When he gave me the script of Popeye, he said, what do you think? Honestly, I don't even know if he said honestly, because he knew I'd be honest. And I said, well, (laughs) I hope you talking like Popeye is enough to make this movie work, because there's no story here. Ultimately, though, Robin decided to do the film. What am I? I'm Popeye, the sailor. Despite a tender performance, his garbled voice and the film's highly stylized feel left audiences confused. The poor reception weighed heavily on Robin, who was also getting a bitter taste of the film industry as he and Bennett tried to pitch their own film. We had the idea that Robin would play six characters, sextuplets separated at birth, unaware of each other's existence. So we pitched it to Robin's managers, and we were all excited. And uh, they said it sounded contrived, so it was back to the drawing board. Uh, next, we thought of, uh, that, you know, there's a lot of protests going on in the Soviet Union then and people trying to get out. So we thought of Robin playing a Polish dissident. And his managers, you know, said that that sort of politics and uh, Soviet Union and dissidents, and we, we don't know if this is Robin should do a political movie. So let's see. Next, we came up with the idea of uh, Robin being a boy who turns 30. But we pitched that to Robin's managers, and they said... 
For Robin, these were personal blows. He tied his identity to his work and felt only as good as his most recent accomplishment. We kept getting um, rejections, and that's all part of it. You know, I'm a writer. You've got to pitch a million things to go somewhere. But for Robin, he didn't totally lose interest. But it was like, Jesus, shooting down everything we come up with. I could be great in these. And just as he felt this defeat, he got the win that he needed. Reality What a Concept, the comedy album he'd worked on with Bennett, was released, and it became an instant hit. Billboard placed it on their top 10 list, and Time magazine gave Robin a cover. Bennett congratulated Robin's publicist, Estelle Endler, on the win. So I said to Estelle, God, you arranged this. This is great, isn't it? And she said, I'm not that happy about it. I said, really? It's a real coup, isn't it? And she said, don't you realize they build him up just so they can tear him down? You almost need someone that big to say, well, he's not really what people think he is, or he's, he and his wife are fighting, or he's having affairs, or he's a drug addict. And Estelle saw that whole star-making machine, and even though she was helping to create it, she could see that, like, you know, there's a young 26-year-old guy, and uh, they're going to get after him later. Hollywood is a fickle lover, though, and while Robin has seen the pendulum sway a little, his career was about to swing into full force. That's all for this episode of Knowing Robin Williams. When we come back next week, we're taking a moment to sit down and listen to some classic Robin stand-up and improv with a special guest. All the Robin, I got, I got everything. I, I got every part of you know Robin being the nicest, sweetest guy to being, yeah, again, uh, uh, complimentary to, uh, to trying to uh, force me to take a fight in it. Thanks to David Skoff. Check out his book, Robin, to learn even more. And please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If Robin had an impact on your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at knowing at macmillan.com. I'm Christy Westgard, your host and producer. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.